Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everyone. That Wayne's Guy here for yet another episode. We are recording this Monday, January the 16th at 7.20 p.m. And our guest tonight, and this is a little known fact, you know that guy from the Dos Equis commercials that is the most interesting man alive? Well, that guy was patterned, like was modeled after Sherman House. And so Sherman, introduce yourself to the audience. Thank you, Lee. That was a very, uh, uh, very, uh, very uh, modest sobriquet that you applied to me there. So uh, my name is Sherman House. Um, you can call me Sherm. Um, so I am... Uh, well, this is going to be a weird story, Lee. I think you're right. Um, so, okay, I have a long uh, background as being a professional second responder going all the way back to the early 1990s. Um, concurrently during that time, uh, like a lot of people that are in public safety, I had a unique work schedule that allowed me to have multiple jobs. So I worked uh, as an armored truck guard like literally riding shotgun on an armored truck. So I was on a three-man crew a lot, and my sole job was to have either an 870 or a Mini 14, and just provide um, cover for uh, the transport operations that we were doing day to day. So we did both um, inner city uh, ATM routes, and then also Federal Reserve Banks, and then interstate courier, where we would take stuff over long distances, sometimes uh, out of the state even. So um, I did that. And then um, I was also going to night school at the time at a junior college, um, working on a law enforcement degree. So I got that and then um, moved around into a couple other fire departments and um, EMS services, and then eventually um, left the Northwest corner of Washington state and moved to Eastern Washington state where I worked at the emergency room um, at a trauma center there, and then I attended Gonzaga University full-time, um, where I played rugby and um, produced, um, published undergraduate research, which, you know, is kind of unusual, especially in the hard sciences, um, and then um, from there, I left um, and went back into the fire service for uh, a year um, and um, moved home to help my mom out after her husband had unexpectedly passed away. And then um, left and moved from um, Western Washington State to Nashville, Tennessee, and to attend the uh, Meharry Medical College. And I was there uh, for four years. And then I stayed there a little while longer to complete a residency in hospital dentistry. Um, after that, I attended another uh, mini residency program at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville um, at the Body Farm, which is colloquial, colloquially known as the uh, University of Tennessee Human Anthropological Research Center. Um, and yes, it's that place that people have seen on all of the Discovery Channel uh, documentaries that's um, basically just experiments set up with decomposing human cadavers 
originally founded by Dr. Bill Bast back in the 70s. Um, completed that, spent um, more than a decade working in the public health field in dentistry, primarily dealing with what I call the three T's, which are teeth like infections, um, tumors uh, of the jaws and the maxilla and uh, trauma. So um, after doing that, taking us into the pandemic, um, I, uh, I left full-time private or full-time practice um, and went into um, academics. So I currently work um, at a medical school and that's attached to a hospital where I am an assistant professor of oral and maxillofacial surgery. And then I'm also the residency program director for the hospital dentistry residency program. And um, so quick uh, side note to that, um, in 2006, I became, um, uh, I was one of the inaugural instructor class uh, graduates from the tactical response um, instructor class and went to work for um, the late James Yeager as the medical program director for the company, um, drawing on my experience from pre-hospital care, and then also cross-trained as a firearms instructor. That's how I met Tom Gibbons um, and the TACCON community and, and kind of got into it that way. And then um, I worked there till about 2013. And then um, um, like left in an official capacity, but I was still in a emeritus capacity there um, and then um, would still return to teach on occasion and and taught some seminars and things out there in Camden and then just recently I've returned to the instructor staff there so um, I'm teaching classes at, at tactical response again All right, cool and I think uh, that takes us about up to <laughs> current oh yeah I'm also still currently a reserve police officer here as well yeah, I was looking at your webpage earlier, and I was reminded of the fact that you have undergraduate degrees in law enforcement, cellular biology, and philosophy, which are three fields that just obviously go together. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the funny thing about the philosophy degree was my original intention was, I, so I, I went to Gonzaga University, which is at the time, I don't know if it's still like this, but they prided themselves on giving their undergraduates a classical education in the Greek tradition. And um, so you had to take a specific um, set of core classes that they defined as a classical education, in addition to whatever your major required, and then the graduation, you know, uh -huh. general university requirements. So <clears throat> I, and philosophy was required. There was, I think it was nine credits of philosophy was required. But I realized if I only took a few more philosophy classes that I could get a, um, a minor. And then I realized if I took a few more past that, that I could get, you know, a double degree because, you know, my, my cellular mm -hmm. biology degree is a BS. And I, I thought, well, I get two pieces of paper at graduation. So, um, and then when I got into it, I was like, oh, I really, I mean, you know, I know I got to have this biology degree to be able to get into school but the philosophy is like what really speaks to me you know and it was kind of a good um I'd use it as like a 
study break between when I'd finished studying the hard sciences. Cause you know, when you are in that kind of program, you you're studying every day, like for hours a day. So I would go to the library, um, do all the hard science and the math and the chemistry. And then I would go home and um, break out the philosophy books and make it as far as I could before I fell asleep, which was usually just about far enough. So, and most of the philosophy professors are pretty laid back, you know, where it would happen invariably where someone would say like, uh, you know, I didn't quite get through the reading last night. Cause some of it's pretty thick, you know? And, um, and then they'd be like, okay, well, let's, let's just go to the, uh, the campus tavern and we'll play some pool and have a couple beers, you know, and talk about it. And, and so there was a lot of that kind of stuff, but I, I always tell people like, I, you know, I do use my science degree on a regular, I mean, you know, on a regular basis, but I also definitely use my philosophy degree. And I feel like the philosophy degree is much more applicable to my everyday life. Um, even if I didn't, you know, if, well, of course, if I didn't work in the sciences directly. Yeah, you know, philosophy professors is one of those jobs for people that went to school a lot but don't want to actually work for a living. Yeah. And so they well, hang we out with college students for the rest of their lives and go to Harvard taverns and play yeah. pool. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's only a few career paths for people that are, yeah. are uh, you know, philosophy majors. And we always used to joke around yeah. and say that um, I think there was 12 of us at Gonzaga that were philosophy majors the year I graduated, you know, out of a school of thousands of people. And um, we always used to joke and say that, you know, after you graduate with your philosophy degree, you get to sit around and think about how you don't have any money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm laughing at someone with undergraduate degrees in history and political science. Yeah, well, you're closely, you're close, but, <laughs> but I, I still, you could probably get a job as a commentator on, on Fox or MSNBC. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And, and yeah. so uh, that's what I, why I went to graduate school, because I knew that I had gotten an undergraduate degree in something that was not employable. Um, yeah. Which was not my fun. original plan. Yeah, but it was not my. And it makes you good at Jeopardy. Yeah, it was not my original plan. I originally was going to be a middle school teacher and just ran okay. into so many administrative hurdles. I was going to certify in, uh, I was going to be a social studies teacher primarily but in middle school education in georgia you have to certify in two <laughs> teach, teaching fields yeah and so i was social studies was going to be one and then uh, english was going to be my other and yeah. so i got all the way into my senior year right up until the point in time where you go to do your student teaching and just ran into some bureaucratic hurdles and sure. i was closer to a political science degree than anything else because i was going to be a social studies teacher yeah and so i had enough credits to um get the major in political science i got a minor in history and if i had stayed one more semester i either could have been a double major in history or gotten gotten a second minor in english because i just I gotcha. needed two, i just needed two more classes in english to have the minor in that uh, i yeah. did take two undergraduate philosophy courses because i screwed up and took the wrong one uh, for the prerequisites, oh. and so i had to go back and take the actual other one that was needed i got gotcha. you so, uh, well, I, I, you, you just made me think of something. I left out one important point about my education. Lee. What's that? Uh, I do actually have a minor uh, and it's in bowling. <laughs> so, so As I said, the of, most interesting man alive. Yeah. So for my degree, I had to have a PE credit. You know, you know how like PE classes are a one yeah. credit class, right? So yeah. I took beginning bowling yeah. and it happened to be at this bowling alley where there was a uh, pizza parlor in there. And they gave you a discount if you were a student. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so you could get a large pizza. You know, this is back in the 90s, right? So yeah. a large 24-inch pizza with pepperoni, mushrooms, and black olives for, for $9. Wow. And, you know, I'm a young man, you know, living on my own. And so I would buy a pizza on Monday, and I would eat that pizza until Thursday. <laughs> um, so it was a very economical thing. So I took beginning bowling, enjoyed it. So I took intermediate bowling, advanced bowling, bowling independent study, and I was a bowling TA. <laughs> so that picked me up a minor. <laughs> oh, man, I'm really flashing back to undergraduate days now because the Arby's used to have the five for five dollars recipe sandwich. And yeah. I'd go get a sack of five recipe sandwiches. And that was like five meals. Absolutely. And, and now as a political science professor, I use that to teach to my students when they want to talk about increasing the minimum wage. Yeah. I'm like, now those same five for five roast beef sandwiches are five for five ninety five. No, now because, they're four for ten. Yeah, because they all don't that, even have the RBQ anymore. <laughs> and and because all that happens when they increase the minimum wage is the prices go up. And so yep. the increase in the minimum wage, the value of that is immediately wiped out. And yep. of course, the audience is now like, what are these two guys talking about and tuning yep. out? But uh, we uh, have the meats. <laughs> yep. Uh, man that was that was uh that was prime living man i used to love it when that sign would go up in the window they're doing that like well i know what i'm eating for the next five nights that's right and And they uh, had those little coupons that you got in the mail yeah and we'll go grab those and uh and take off and so but you developed a concept called the Mm -hmm. civilian defender Mm -hmm. Uh, tell our audience about the civilian defender concept Okay, this is kind of a weird, convoluted um, story. So mm-hmm. hang in there with me. Um, okay, so back in approximately 2013-ish, I started a blog called uh, Revolver Science. And I basically just talked about, you know, there wasn't a revolver renaissance. Uh, well, shoot, I mean, that was almost 10 years ago. Like there is now, you know, where people actually give a darn about revolvers. Um, it kind of sparked me to, to do it because when I was at a class uh, teaching one time, there was a couple of rookie police officers there, you know, that were in their early 20s. Um, and I showed them the J frame that I carry on my ankle. And they actually had no idea how to like open the cylinder, like eject the empties. They had no idea. And I, and it just baffled me as like, you know, someone who studies these kinds of things you know, that you would put yourself on the street and, and not know how to do that because it's, they're ubiquitous. I mean, they're everywhere and they're going to be everywhere for probably the next several hundred years. Um, so it was just kind of baffling to me that these, these kids didn't know. So I started to write, you know, these, they're not really blog posts. They're, they're more like long form essays. You know, some of them are five, 10,000 words, depending on what I'm on a tear about. Um, and, um, and I just kind of wrote it like fun to sort of educate people. And then a short while later, the, uh, our friend, the late William, Dr. uh, William April said, um, dude, there's like nine people that read your website because nobody cares about rotary assault pistols. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, you know, those nine people, they give me, you know, nine likes every time I post something. And he was like, well, that's very, you know, nice of you, but you should change your, your, the name of it or something so that it's like more 
generic format so that you could write about things other than guns that are obsolete nobody cares about and i was like oh come on okay so i was kind of sitting there and around simultaneously around that same time <clears throat> you know how like once you become a firearms instructor like you're now a firearms instructor to everybody that knows you mm -hmm. and so people would come up to me and say like hey you know i you know how it is like uh, you know i i was in the navy and i fired 50 rounds out of a 1911 in, in 1971 but i definitely you know need to get some more training and stuff like where do i start and so i was like well that's a good question and then the more i thought about it i was like if you're trying to get to the point where you're like really a scholar on these kinds of things it's not just a matter of taking you know one or two classes there's it's a course of study just like school and um and you know i, I kind of described it in the original becoming a civilian defender article which is on my website um that uh, i kind of thought about it you know almost as being like a phd level education by the time you're done because when you total up all the hours you know it's it's probably approaching you know 2500 to 5000 hours ish like somewhere around there <clears throat> um if you really go like full send on it you know um i i mean you could get away with a very solid basis for a lot less than that but you know if you're going into it to really be someone who is you know both a historian a lecturer and an extemporaneous speaker on that material that requires a good bit more effort you know to truly be a professor on the subject so i wrote this article it was kind of like an outline of um, the specific areas of training that I thought were relevant that, that are, you know, people often, as you know, Lee, people will take the, well, the police officers in my town are trained to do this. Well, I live by Fort Campbell and the special forces, fifth special forces group there is trained to do this. And it's like, they're not playing the same game that you're playing. Right. So, you know, the things that you're much more, you know, is more applicable to your life to know instead of doing a um, fast roping onto a building urban assault course, you know, would probably be a medical course or a pepper spray course or a defensive driving course, which a lot of people, you know, that we know are horrible drivers um, and uh, would really benefit from, from even something as simple as like uh, a condensed, um, you know, EVOC course just because they get in accidents because they, they their situational awareness is so poor. And um, so I wrote this article and I just kind of thought like, well, you know, three people are gonna read this. And one of those three people was Tom Givens. And he uh, hit me back and said, Sherman, I really enjoyed your article. Would you mind if I used it in the Range Master newsletter? And I was like, what? You know, like, yeah, of course, like, like that's, you know, a, a major deal. and. Um, so he did, and you know Tiffany, I think put some great graphics on it, you know, and and um, and I ended up like printing it out, and for a long time I gave like color copies <laughs> to uh, my students just because I was like, well, I mean, have you taken a class by somebody that's written something like this, you know, <laughs> and um, and so I ended up um, you know, referring people to that for a long time, and it's still, you know, it's been on there for probably I guess about close to seven or eight years now that article's been up there and it gets reads every day um 
so it, I guess it's still doing the mileage. And then occasionally, you know, every month or month and a half, somebody will post it onto Facebook and then I'll get like, and people will share it, you know, and then it kind of goes viral and I'll get like a big, huge spike in the ratings. Um, but I, I kind of use that like as my own litmus test as far as like what's really applicable to what a civilian defender needs. And then kind of like in the ultimate um, shout out, William April in his um, book, um, in his the section of the book that he wrote, uh, you know, with John and Masada Ayub and Craig and Tom and everybody that was that compendium. He actually uh, cited me and, and said, you know, the civilian defender um, as, as like the person that we're talking about, you know, dealing with violent criminal actors. And so I was like, damn. And so, um, you know, when I've been at TACCON events before and stuff, and, you know, people are getting their books autographed, I'm like, you want me to autograph my page? <laughs> so there's a couple of books floating around out there and, um, and that have my autograph on that page. So Here, pull up your article on my smartphone and let me take a Sharpie and draw, write my name. Yeah, down. yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how the, the idea started. And then when people started the um, demand for more and more um, open enrollment medical classes, I took a curriculum that I designed when I was in tactical response. And with James's permission, I said, can I, you know, rename this change the curriculum to make it, you know, modernized and then, you know, continue to teach it under my own masthead. And he was like, yeah, of course, like, I don't, you know, do your thing, man. And, um, and so I started teaching a class that I called the hack or HAC hemorrhage arrest course um, that was basically a stop the bleed class with the addition of chest seals. So the stop the bleed official like nationwide curriculum has nothing to do with chest seals. Um, which I think is very important. And, um, and so um, I started doing that in both a four hour and an eight hour version. You know, I've done it um, down there for you um, in Athens. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's vocationally generic. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a tough guy to, or, or a tough gal to take that class. It's, 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 we've literally had kindergarten teachers and, and, um, preachers from different congregations i've been hosted at churches before you know there's no um i can i can um uh you know kind of parse the curriculum and make it more applicable to you know whatever people's settings are so um i've taught that class probably a um, hundred times and um and then <clears throat> um you know people would always ask me to like you know, do you ever do any firearms kind of stuff? And I would always like point them in, you know, other people's directions. And, um, uh, but I would teach like at seminars or at Polypalooza and things like that and, um, and teach firearm centric material. But it's always been something that I've really, you know, enjoyed. And, um, and so I'll, I, I'll probably start writing a little bit more about those kinds of things there. One of the cool things, you know, as you know, when you have friends in the industry, a lot of times people will ask you to audit their class. You know, other instructors will ask you to audit their class because they want, you know, your, they really want your after action report, but also they're, they're kind of doing it as like a peer review to um, check their material. And so I, I, I've had the honor and the pleasure of doing that a few times. And I really enjoy doing that just because um, 
uh, <clears throat> my Hebrew ancestors would strike me down if I didn't say because it's free, but also because um, I, I, I like to talk about um, the, I, I like to talk about the philosophy, you know, I like to talk about um, doctrine and ideas and how people get to a specific point and the rationale and the why behind why behind the things that they teach. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to bring up the Hebrew thing, but it just plays into the most interesting dentist alive thing. Uh, yeah. Hebrew who went to, what was the, the dental school you went to? McNary? McCary? Meharry. Meharry, which is a historically black college, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 The, the, the Meharry brothers, though, were, were yeah. actually white. Yeah. 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 And then I went to a Jesuit undergrad. So, um, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, just just covering all the bases. Yeah. I'm, I, I think I should be good wherever I end up. Yeah. All right. Uh, just kind of give the framework of what it is to be a civilian defender. Sure. So, you know, I, I arranged the um, the training points in the order that they're probably most likely to be needed, you know. So, uh, you know, I think that like if you are a parent or anybody who is in charge of other people, um, you definitely have to have some some core medical knowledge. So, you know, you need to know how to do CPR, rescue breathing, and the Heimlich maneuver. You need to know how to control bleeding. You need to know how to apply a chest seal. You probably should also know how to do some basic splinting because if you're one of those people whose kids makes it to age 18 without some type of superficial or severe trauma, you're, you're lucky. Um, most people don't, that doesn't happen um, because most people have coffee tables in their homes and at one point or another, uh, in that child's life cycle, they're going to end up with their forehead on that coffee table uh, at the uh, at 9.81 meters per second square. And um, and I've seen more injuries from coffee tables in the emergency room over the last 30 years than I've seen um, from just about anything else. So um, medical skills and then driving skills. You know, people spend so much time driving and they end up getting into self-defense situations that could have been an evasive driving situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I've literally driven away from two carjackings, you know, where people were like, you know, I had, okay, so this is probably not, this doesn't uh, adhere to Farnham's rule of stupids. Um, and that was my fault, but I was in school and I had limited resources, but I had a Dodge Magnum with uh, tinted windows, you know, like dark, like 35% tinted windows. And, um, and so, you know, um, the area of town that I was in, I guess people made assumptions and they assumed wrong. Um, so I wasn't an easy victim and I wasn't going to play what they were asking me to play. So, um, you know, and a couple of them like literally came up uh, with guns drawn and I just said, well, and I mean, I know they're not gonna shoot at a moving vehicle, like what would be the point in that? And so I just drove away if you don't have that pre-programmed response and that's something that you've studied, you're not going to do it. You're going to like think about going to your gun. And now that's a whole other ball of wax. If I just drive away from a carjacking, I don't even need to call the police if I don't want to, if I've got, if I don't have four spare hours for Metro Nashville PD 
to respond on a good day for a call like that they'd probably show up three days later honestly i mean you know we're, we're at like 90 minutes now here for a priority one call so um yeah that kind of thing so then also you know william april used to teach um his uh uh his, you know part of his curriculum was was kind of aimed at getting people to have more global situational uh and and mobility awareness skills you know just to be cognizant of like what they're up against and and what the criminal element looks like because so many people don't know and i know that you know this but like um james yeager always used to tell this story about like when you're a cop and you do it for a while especially if you do it when you're an older adult it's kind of like having a superpower because you'll go to a place and he always used to tell the story but i can't remember which vampire movie it was i want to say it was like Daywalkers. it was the one with willem dafoe and the guys with the crossbows but he's like yeah look if you, if you look over there you can see the bartender's a vampire and that guy over there that's washing the dishes he's a vampire too it's kind of like that when you're a cop you know you start to get like this awareness that uh, a hyper or, you know realistic awareness that that a lot of people don't see and you're just acclimated to seeing it so you can look at somebody who looks like they're doing something innocuous to a layperson, but to the expert you go that guy's up to no good but you don't have to be a police officer to develop those skills you can develop those skills you know as a skilled civilian defender if you put the work in and it's just one of those things where you essentially just have to open your eyes to the world and and see it through a more focused lens and then you know and then of course we get into things like like um pistol work you know and 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 uh unarmed self-defense you know the things that that you're like less likely to use but if you have one it would behoove you to have the other you know if you if you do carry a pistol on a regular basis it would probably be good for you to have some unarmed capabilities and some weapon retention capabilities just because if um i see somebody you know especially when i have to travel to areas where guns are you know forbidden um when i see people that are carrying guns and i think to myself like i'm not carrying a gun if something bad happens, that's going to be my gun. And, and I know that they're not going to be able to mount a defense. Um, and um, so that kind of thing, like, and, and then of course, like pepper spray, you know, you're, you're much more likely to have to pepper spray somebody than you are to have to shoot somebody or fist fight or jujitsu somebody. Um, but, you know, all of those things kind of mesh together. And if you read the whole article, it kind of builds the thesis towards, you know, these are the more um, high probability skills that you'll need to use, you know, starting with uh, streetwise, um, street smarts, and and self-reliance types of skills and, and lectures. And luckily, thanks to Rob Pincus, you know, at PDN, there's still a, uh, you know, William's videos are still memorialized online, and all of that material is still out there, so. All right. Um, speaking of medical training, there's someone in the show group asked about how would you go about vetting people who are providing medical training? Well, I, um, I think that with medical training, um, you should take it from someone who has actually done that kind of stuff in real life. Because until you've seen blood, you know, squirting out of someone under pressure, um, when you're under pressure to perform, 
and do something to save them, everything is kind of theoretical. And, I, you know, I've heard and seen, you know, YouTube and Instagram videos and stuff from people who, you know, I can tell that they've taken a class and they've kind of like regurgitated material that they don't, you know, personally own. And, um, and some of it is, I, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to like get people killed, but I mean, there's better ways to skin that cat. And, you know, I, I tell people that like on a, um, you know, average day for me um, in my academic and clinical practice at the emergency room, um, in the operating room and in the emergency clinic floor, you know, I uh, pack wounds and control bleeding every day. Um, and, and, you know, not just in people's mouths. And so um, I, I literally probably get more um, of a sympathetic nervous system response from watching an episode of Seinfeld than I do from dealing with bleeding people because I've done, been doing it for 30 years. Um, so it, it doesn't really phase me. And I think that it's important to have somebody who's a vetted medical professional, preferably with pre-hospital care experience. You know, I've done it both ways. I've taken care of people, you know, in ditches and homes and uh, airplanes and helicopters and, you know, everywhere outside of a hospital and I've taken care of people inside of hospitals and taking care of people in austere environments is much more difficult than taking care of people in the hospital because you have effectively unlimited manpower and resources um, in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. In an austere setting, sometimes it's you and me, Lee, and, and we're, we are literally like buckling down and fixing this thing and help is coming, but they're three and a half counties away and two of the major uh, highways into us are out. So they're having to take SR9. So that means that it's going to be, we're going to be entertaining these people, reading them stories, telling them jokes, doing, building a fire sometimes, um, doing everything we can to keep these people preserved until we can get them transported to a uh, higher care facility. Oh, I, I, I am flashing back right now. And, yeah. and, and, and before I, I go into the anecdote that I'm going to provide, I will say this for the audience. It's not hard to get the certifications to like be a CPR instructor, to be this other. No. I have on my post record, I am actually an emergency medical instructor. Yeah. Anything beyond wrapping a bandage on something in a tourniquet, you don't want to take from me. Right. <laughs> yeah. but, I, but my post record says that I'm an emergency medical instructor. Uh, yeah. I went through a 40 hour first responder medical class as part of a certification mm -hmm. program here in Georgia. Yeah. And I went through this class and I was feeling pretty good about myself. All right. Now I've got some training in these areas. Graduated from the class on a Friday. On Tuesday, I was the first person in to an actual honest to goodness CPR by mm -hmm. life life critical incident. And thankfully enough, people who knew what they were doing got there in time that we were able to save this person. Yeah. And I said to myself, you know, self, you, you just went through this 40 hour class and it's not enough. So yeah. Wednesday, Wednesday morning, I go to the deputy fire chief's office and I say, when is the next uh, real honest to goodness first responder class that the fire rescue service is doing? He said, well, we got one starting in a couple of weeks. And so yeah. I went, went through that one and it was 80 hours of training and you had to do 10 clinical rides 
on an annual. Right. Yeah. And so, I, so I went through that class. And I'm thinking, all right, now I've got more practical experience. I know kind of what I'm doing, sort of. Yeah. And the big, I'm going home one day and I'm where two highways intersect near my house. I hear a wreck call come out that I know was just a few hundred yards to my left. So I hit yeah. the lights and sirens, take the left hand turn, run down. I'm the first guy that I like, I beat everybody else there for like 10 minutes. Yeah. And I jump out and I run up to the, to the two cars and run up to the first one. This is uh, probably in her forties uh, lady. And then she's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Check on them. And so I run over to the other car and it's an Asian couple that does not speak English. Okay. And the husband is splurting blood from his forehead. So I'm grabbing stuff, start trying to deal with him. And I glance back over my shoulder and the woman that is in the other car is in convulsions. Yeah. And like, so I just like wrap as much as I can around the, the man's head and like grab his wife's hand and put it yeah. on the side of his head, like trying to convince her to keep pressure. And then yeah. I run around to the, to the car where the driver's in convulsions. And I got, I got nothing for this. And yep. I don't, I have exceeded my capacity at yeah. the other car. Yeah. Right, but I could play that off as I have two emergency medical first responder certifications a trauma care cert instructor from Fletzy and Georgia Post says that I'm a medical emergency medical responder and I could sell you classes. Right. But how quickly in just two real calls did my skills get exceeded? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I mean, to tell you the truth, I took my very first medical training probably when I was in the seventh grade and it was in health class. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they would show us these real to, you know, those old, timey movies you know that were real to real you know where the yeah. projector was loud and um and it was green and yeah. um you know everybody would sit there and they were like these really brilliantly produced practical mm -hmm. effect um gore films essentially that would show you how to do first aid stuff including cpr and rescue breathing well i have a, a younger brother um who's also a doctor his name is phil we call him dr phil and me dr house but um, he uh, was, he developed uh, insulin dependent diabetes when he was seven and um, also severe asthma. And him and I were latchkey kids and we would walk home from school and then, you know, wait at home for several hours until our mom got home. And one day um, we were at home and his blood sugar bottomed out. And when his blood sugar bottomed out, he went into respiratory arrest. So the first person that I ever did rescue breathing on was my brother. And I was about 13. Um, and then it happened again uh, when I was 14. And, um, and you know, both of these times, the, the true second, early second responders in our town were the police um, because they were on 24 hours and, and everybody else was a volunteer. Um, and so including the ambulance, um, and so, um, you know, the police officers were there and, you know, like if they, I mean, if they're confident that, you know, what you're doing, they're going to let you keep doing what you're doing and just relieve you as you need to, you know, and anybody that's ever done that before, I can tell you, like, I'm in pretty decent shape. You know, I do jujitsu, I lift weights, I run on a treadmill and, and, uh, as a grown ass man. Um, I've got about 
eight minutes of CPR in me before I need to take a break yeah, because it's worry, continuous. Yeah. yeah. It's continuous exercise. Um, and of course you're like, you know, a race car in the red when it's happening because mm -hmm. you've got somebody who's dead, you're trying to undead them. And, um, and it's, it's intense. So, um, a few months after that, I had been trying to stand up a police explorer post in my town um, as the founding member. And um, a police officer that was a family friend that I'd known since I was a child, um, I was actually outside washing my mom's Astro minivan in hopes that she would let me drive it, you know, to go get milk uh, at the grocery store. And um, he pulled up in his Caprice Classic and said, hey, I know you're really good at rescue breathing and CPR. Your neighbors had a heart attack. Will you come with me and help me? And I jumped into the back of the cruiser and we literally went probably eight houses around the corner. We ran inside and, you know, police back in the 90s, you know, they didn't carry, there was no defibs. I mean, yeah. defibs were in the ambulance only or in the yeah. emergency room. And um, so we just went inside um, and we had CPR masks and there was this man who was, you know, pulseless and apneic and, mm -hmm. and blue on the sofa and we pulled him down on the ground and started doing CPR on him. And the first compression that I did after I found my landmark, his sternum came all the way off of his rib cage um, underneath my hands. And it made a sound and a sensation underneath the heels of my hands that unless you've experienced it before, it's kind of like how it was in John Carpenter's The Thing. Like that's the same feeling when the thing bit that dude's arms off when he was trying to do CPR. That's what it felt like. It was bizarre. And I remember the panic looked on my face and I looked at Officer Burnett and I said, what do I do? And he was like, just keep going, buddy. Yeah. And so I just kept going. And um, we were there probably him and I doing cycles of CPR, swapping back and forth for about 10 minutes. Um, and then the fire department came, they defibrillated him a couple times with an old defibrillator that shot a literal blue lightning bolt um, that you could see. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and he actually had a return of spontaneous circulation. So I was lucky and that my first CPR attempt was actually a save. And, and um, in the 1500 to 2000 events I've participated in CPR since, my record has not been nearly as good. Yeah. Very few instances in which I have seen CPR actually bring someone back. I've seen it attempted a good bit. Um, yeah. You know, there ought to be a special certification for carrying stretchers because I've helped carry a bunch of stretchers. I've been on scene for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've done some of the rudimentary things, but man, it's just, <laughs> you know, when you were describing the sound in the field, there is nothing like the sound of ribs cracking on CPR. Yeah. Once you've heard it, you know what, the, you'll never forget that sound. And yeah. it's like the smell of your first three day dead body. You'll, you'll never yep. forget that smell. And those yeah. are things that you'll just, once you know, you know, and you just can't yeah. get rid of. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I'll so that was, I, I got kind of roped into the business, I guess, by yeah. God at an early age. And, yeah. and that was uh, what, 35 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, and, You know, I, I just had those two traumatic, and I guess traumatic is not necessarily the right word for that, but they're just two overwhelming experiences in the beginning. But, you know, the more I was around it, the less it's, 
tended to be. Now, I, I haven't, I don't have like near the hands-on experience of someone that's actually out there doing it for a living. Does. Sure. Uh, I did have my own rescue radio number on the fireside for the rescue and everything, but I just, yeah. It's one of those things that you got to constantly be doing. And I, I would agree with the assessment there that you know, look for someone who is an EMT paramedic out there doing yeah. something versus someone who just has certifications. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's somebody that works in a busy area, like I was talking to a guy, it's kind of funny uh, at Christmas, I was talking to a buddy of mine that was actually my first assigned rookie. So after I was um, no longer Greenhorn, he was my first assigned rookie. And um, he's now the assistant chief of the department that we were on together after 23 years. So, um, and he said that him and I uh, still hold the record for the most calls in 24 hours, which was 26, yeah. 26 calls in 24 hours. And, uh, and, you know, if you're running in a department that is like that, um, you know, call heavy to where you're just like yeah. literally going call to call to call to call, no sleep no eating, no bathroom breaks, you know, it's yeah. embarrassing. Like when you have to go to, you know, a victim's house or, or you're at a car accident and you run up to where the car's mm -hmm. crashed into somebody's front yard and you go, hi, could I use your bathroom please? Because yeah. you kind of want to just go take the leak in the woods, but you yeah. also don't want to end up getting a call from the chief. Like, did you yeah. pee in the woods in front of somebody's <laughs> house? No. So um, yeah. I've done that. I've asked people if I could use their bathrooms and I always leave it better than I found it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's, I, I really do think that there yeah. is a lot of, a, a lot of benefit to learning from people who have worked yeah. pre-hospital or work, uh, worked in a, um, emergency capacity of some kind. I used to work with an officer that, uh, had attempted CPR numerous times and had never had a success, right? Yeah. success to the point that sometimes jokingly instead of calling him by his radio number we would call him by the 10 code to notify the coroner oh uh, yeah and when i actually saw my first cpr save he was at another agency by this point in time and i was somewhere else and i'm like i called him like dude you're not going to believe this and it wasn't i just saw someone saved with cpr <laughs> <laughs> It's, like, it's true. Yeah. It can happen. It yeah. can happen. It's not to you. Just not to <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, it can yeah. happen. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's, you know, like I said, um, you know, in the early 90s, when we were just straight up doing CPR and, and not being, I don't think the science was not surprised that it wasn't working. Once yeah. we got defibrillators in the field, now that was a different story because we realized yeah. at that point that moving the blood around wasn't doing any good if there was no yeah. electrical activity in the heart. Yeah. So or, or I should say organized electrical activity in the heart. Yeah. So once we started defibrillating people, we were much more successful. Yeah. And um, I, I've, you know, defibrillated people to this day and, and had good success with, them. I'm a big fan of them. You know, like I always, yeah. if I'm on a bus and there's one on there, I keep an eye on it. If I'm in the airport, you know, I like to see where they're at on the walls yeah. just because unfortunately I guess, unfortunately for me, but fortunately for them, I'm often that guy yeah. who's there. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I try not to get ready. I try to stay ready. Well, other than CPR and bleeding control, what is the one life-saving skill that, that uh, the proverbial average citizen should have? 
Good question. Um, definitely the Heimlich maneuver and removing an airway obstruction, especially if you have kids. Um, I can, I, I, you know, I, I, I think this is going to turn into the war story podcast lead, but I guess that's okay. Um, one of the calls I remember when I was still in my rookie time was, uh, was uh, I had just finished EMT school and we got called to a choking baby. And um, it was very close to the fire station. So we were probably there in like 90 seconds from the time that the call was dispatched. And when I walked through the door, there was these two crying adult parents holding up this infant. You know, he was, I mean, he's probably like eight months. I don't know if that's still an infant, but, um, and the baby held it, it was blue with its eyes bugging out of its head. It held up its arms to me like this, like take me. And I grabbed that baby and I stuck my big ass pinky down its airway and I knocked a hot dog out of there, a slice of a hot dog out of there. And the baby, you know, you know, coughed a few times, you know, her eyes watered a little. I, I held the baby and the baby was happy and, you know, was wondering why there was this giant fireman with a weird hat on, like helping them. <laughs> and, um, and I explained to the parents, you know, like, this is how big my pinky is. This is how big your baby's pinky is, you know, which is like the size of a bay shrimp. Yeah. Like that's how big around their airway is. So nothing larger than that. You can't feed them anything larger than that because it will obstruct their airway. Like I had no idea. I thought, you know, my mom fed me sliced up hot dogs when I was a kid. And the dad's like, yeah, me too. I still eat them, you know? And so it was like, yeah, don't do that. But um, yeah, airway obstruction and the Heimlich maneuver. Um, you know, I was at TACCON one time and I actually did, uh, I actually did the Heimlich maneuver in Texas de Brazil, where uh, a bunch of the instructors were eating, not on one of the instructors either. And I was in the middle of telling the story. I saw someone do the universal sign for choking, you know, because everybody's woofing down the all you can eat delicious meats at Texas de Brazil. And so I said, excuse me, fellas. And I went over there and I said, hi. My name's Sherman House. Can I help you? And this lady was like, like that. And I just went, okay, hold on. And I, and I did one, boom, and, and shot out, you know, a piece mm -hmm. of sirloin. And um, I hit her on the back and I said, are you okay, dear? And she was like, yeah. And I said, go ahead and take a drink of water. And she did. And I said, did it go down okay? And she said, yep. And I said, you guys have a great dinner. And I went back to the table and I sat down and I started talking. And I was like, so anyway. <laughs> it started the story right back where you left off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and James was like, did you just Heimlich maneuver that lady? And I said, yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with my story. And yeah. so I went back to what I was talking about, but yeah, I, especially if you have children uh, or if you're around children, you know, if you're a school teacher, if you uh, work in any kind of capacity where there's children, that's vital. People choke all the time. And I feel like it's gotten worse since the COVID thing with masks, because now, you know, your, your body kind of has a almost involuntary response. You know, if there's something that's too large, you can launch it out. You can't launch it out if you're wearing a mask. So. That's true. And yeah. people won't see your facial expressions. Correct. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Until you start turning blue. Yeah. Um, what trauma slash medical skills are being overemphasized in classes and which ones are being underemphasized in classes? Sure. So I would say things being overemphasized probably is tourniquets. Okay. So, you know, tourniquets got to us through the, 
you know, TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care, you know, the, the um, organization that's charged with developing the research and curricula for the Department of Defense. So a lot of times, kind of like how people try to erroneously adapt military and police doctrine to civilian defender doctrine, um, it, the, sort of the same things happen. So you have to remember, you know, if you're dealing with people in the armed forces, they generally have a helmet and they have body armor on um, that covers at least their torso. So extremity injuries are really common because that's the only thing that's dangling out there in the wind. With um, civilians, yes, you do have the possibility of getting hit in extremity, but what's the more larger target? Well, on some Americans, it's a very, very large target and it's their torso. Um, so, you know, bullet holes that enter or projectiles or penetrating trauma of any kind, you know, that hits between the Adam's apple and the belly button really deserves a chest seal. And like I said, unfortunately, Stop the Bleed curriculum doesn't cover, you know, the anatomy nor the why of, of uh, chest seals. And I think they do that probably one for expediency, just so they can, I think it's about a 90 minute curriculum that they do. Um, and then also for the cost, you know, like tourniquets are cheap. You can, you know, buy a, a, a gym bag full of training tourniquets and you rarely have to replace them if you just are using those in classes. Chest seals are a different story. You know, they're, they're 12 to $24 for a pack and they're pretty much single use. Um, even though they have some training variants, they're, they're still more expensive. I think it has something to do with that. And then maybe also the difficulty in having some people that teach Stop the Bleed curriculum or lay people, uh, which is okay um, if that's the only way that you can get it. But the problem is explaining the difference between you know negative and positive pressure and lung injuries and why you have to plug the hole, you know, or at least cover the hole and valve it. Um, so I would say chest seals are, are an important thing to know, especially if you're, um, you know, if you're a law enforcement officer, um, if you're a corrections officer, things like that, because, you know, like penetrating trauma is a real deal. You know, as, as much as we would like to see that, you know, every police officer wears a vest, it's still much more common, especially in the South, you know, where it's hotter to see in, in some times police officers still aren't wearing vests. So, you know, penetrating trauma is a real thing. Also, you know, um, as you know, Lee, sometimes the vest that you get five years ago uh, issued four years later, I don't know what it is, but that vest seems to have shrunk some and, um, and you've got less of it covering you. And so you've got spaces, you know, especially on your sides that are opened up to projectiles or, or uh, penetrating trauma. And that's a concern as well, because that injury can occur there. So I, like I said, chest seals, I think is an important thing to know. And it's one of those things that if you have somebody um, is a good lecturer and they can explain it and break it down, um, it's, it's a really short module. I mean, it's kind of a duh sort of thing. You know, you, you, uh, you know, like Carrie Davis at Dark Angel Medical says, like you seal the box, you know, um, and, and if you do that, then you'll be, I think, in better shape and more prepared. And chest seals can be pretty easily improvised if needed. Yeah, you can do it with almost any kind of plastic. I mean, I've seen people improvise it with duct tape before. Um, there's lots of ways you can do it. Um, so, yeah, it, it is one of those things, but you have to know why. 
You know, you have to know why you're doing it. I've also seen people kind of go the other way where they think like any penetrating wound deserves wound packing. And then they end up like packing wound packing into a, you know, pulmonary injury, you know, into chest trauma and end up creating effectively attention pneumothorax because they've filled up the pleural space where the lung would normally be able to inflate into with gauze, you know, with yards of gauze. But there's, you know, you, you almost just end up killing the person because you've now made it harder for them to breathe instead of actually doing something that's helpful. So it's important to know this, the distinction between those. All right. Now, there are tons now, and this used to not be the case. It's one of those things that, you know, once something becomes a thing in the training industry, we start to see all kinds of stuff spring forth. Uh, yeah. IFACs, which, you know, when you and I started in the cop business, nobody carried an IFAC. And oh. now it's everybody's carrying one, it seems. There's so many of them on the market. What would your recommendations for an IFAC be? And uh, excuse me, let, let's define the acronym, individual first sure. aid kit. Sure. So whatever you get, I think it's important that it has, I mean, there's so many different people that are selling them and making them now, and they're all basically the same thing. And if they're decent, they pretty much all use the same components. It just is a matter of like, what kind of conveyance do you put it into? Um, but, you know, I think that you need to have um, at least one and preferably two tourniquets, um, just because if someone has uh, like, you know, more commonly like a household trauma kind of thing. So like, you know, someone's doing some chainsaw work out in their yard and they don't, um, you know, use good uh, saw hygiene and end up cutting into their leg, you know, and they, you know, lacerate their femoral artery. Um, one tourniquet might slow it down, but not occlude it, the bleeding completely, but two tourniquets can. So, you know, I'm not yeah. talking about like, you know, I think the mathematical chances of someone getting two extremity hits, you know, I mean, there's a possibility there. So it'd be better to have two than to have to do one and then improvise another. You don't want to improvise stuff if you have a store bought or a, a pre, um, you know, designed option available. So um, tourniquets, um, I think you need to have a chest seal. I need to, th I think you need to have wound packing of some kind, whether that's you know, some type of hemostatic bleeding agent, you know, like quick clot or any of its analogs, um, or if you just have plain gauze, that's fine too. Um, those are the things. And then gloves, I think it's important to have at least a pair of gloves because you don't want to take home um, what somebody else has on them. And if, you know, you've got somebody that has some type of bloodborne pathogen disease and you save them or you don't save them and they end up dying, but you end up getting hepatitis C, that's still a loss. Um, yeah. So um, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, those are the big things. Those are the things, you know, I don't leave home without. I have, you know, I, I wear like Duluth Trading Company pants all the time. And I have, you know, a soft tee wide tourniquet and then a, um, a flat packed um, chest seal and a, um, a set of hemostatic gauze with me all the time. Whether, um, you know, if I'm working on the range, I've got a whole bag, but I always have this stuff on my body, even when I'm at work, you know, uh, in scrubs. So. All right. Um, what about emergency dentistry? 
you know, we've had natural disaster. Which, yeah. You look just just this past weekend across the southeast here in Georgia, yeah. we had tornadoes take out several towns. Sure. Uh, last, last year, a tornado took out an entire town in Kentucky. Uh, yeah. Hurricanes hit Florida earlier. And quite frankly, folks, we're about three days away at any given time from total societal collapse if the food yeah. supply gets shut off uh, yeah. or powers out for more than three days. Yeah. Uh, what's some more emergency dentistry things that people need to have, like rudimentary? Well, you know, the, 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 the thing that we see... Um, and it still happens, unfortunately, even in first world countries is, um, and in third world countries, it's, you know, one of the top five causes of death is, you know, a dental infection of some kind. Um, and they're, they're kind of, they don't, they don't happen overnight. Um, there's, they, they usually have like some type of prodromal episode that leads up to it. So, you know, someone's, uh, you know, eating a rack of ribs and, you know, bites into a bone and um, breaks a tooth and then they go oh I, you don't have time to get this fixed or I don't have any more dental benefits for this year so I'm going to wait until they turn over January 1st well that tooth has died and now it's started to decompose inside your jaw and all of the liquid uh, oh sorry all of the blood supply the nervous supply and the lymphatic supply in the tooth undergoes a process called liquefactive necrosis so um, just like at the body farm, if you leave somebody laying out there in the sun after a few days, they're not going to look like a person anymore. They're going to look like they got 40 weight motor oil coming out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, same thing that's called liquefactive necrosis. So that means that all of the autolytic enzymes that we have in our bodies all the time, along with bacteria start to break us down. That happens actually inside the tooth. So you end up with this dead tooth. Um, that is decomposed inside your jaw. And now you initiate like essentially a foreign body reaction. Your body recognizes that something is wrong. Something is foreign. There's some pus in there and we need to wall it off. And it's not always effective at walling it off. So it can spread and it can spread. If it goes north, it goes into your cavernous sinus, which is contiguous with your brain. Um, and if it goes south, it can go through your neck and end up in your mediastinum, which is the compartment where your heart is. And um, those are lethal. Um, and, and it can also just turn into a case of like septicemia where someone becomes septic and then their organs start to fail and they die. And unfortunately, we still see probably about 25 to 30 of those a year. And uh, that's here in the US. That's here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, with everything functioning. With everything functioning and everything available. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's still a danger. So my biggest advice to people is, is if you have something wrong with your mouth, like today is the day to fix it. You know, like I don't make it, I don't make money off of seeing patients anymore. You know, I'm paid a salary by my school. So I still see patients uh, mostly in a supervisory capacity or a teaching capacity, but I don't make any money off of it. So I, I'm not trying to line my pocketbook here, but if you have a problem, go to a professional in your area and get it fixed now before it becomes uh, a problem in the future. The other thing I would say is, is if you're the, you know, prepared type um, person, then it would behoove you to have antibiotics 
um, that are probably in the penicillin family and then something that is in the penicillin allergic family um, to have to treat dental infections um, because that's what we give for first line drugs. But one of the cool things about my job, I always tell people is, you know, 1850s dentistry works every time. Um, and what I mean by that is you got a problem with a tooth, taking it out, it's always extracting it, it's always going to fix it. And, um, and so, you know, I would have done really well, uh, you know, 175 years ago, um, because I'm really good at, you know, I'm an exodontist primarily. That's what I do is extract teeth. And, um, and so, um, you know, it's, but it, it's not something that I would ever recommend a lay person attempt, because if you screw it up, you're going to make the problem worse. Um, and you have the possibility of like fracturing someone's jaw, which has its own set of, of hazards that goes along with it. And unfortunately, I always jokingly say being this close to the hills of Kentucky, we have people that come to the school that have attempted home surgery on themselves, thinking that they've done a good job, only to find that they've fractured their jaw, they've broken off bone, and they think they've gotten the tooth out but they've broken the crown off of the tooth. They've not got the root out of the tooth, which is the other three quarters of it. And so it still sits in there, it still abscesses, and it still causes a lot of problems. So um, if you have a dentist in your, in your area, uh, or your neighborhood, I should say, that's your friend, um, um, or if you're close to me, uh, you know, you can be nice to them and, and barter with them or something after the end of the world happens for them to continue to be your healthcare provider and, and uh, keep you safe from that kind of stuff. Because yeah, you're right. Um, I would say just with what I saw during the COVID shutdown, because they shut down all dental offices here, we were the only, we're called the dental safety net clinic. Like that's what we're named by the state. So that in the event of an emergency, we still function, you know, in an emergency capacity to be able to, you know, we're not doing fillings, we're not doing, uh, you know, crowns and I don't, I'm not really the guy that does that kind of stuff. I'm the guy that you go to for bigger problems. And, um, and so we were busy, you know, the whole time during COVID because everybody else was shut down. So like the dentist that you've been going to for 20 years, that guy's was, you know, padlocked. Yeah. Um, and, um, and under orders from the state not to do anything. And, and most of the people, you know, most of the people that are out there, they don't really deal with emergencies like that. They will send you to an oral surgeon and, you know, a lot of those guys, they didn't totally shut down their practices, but they definitely made it difficult for them. So, yeah. um, in that time, you know, the amount of emergencies that we saw increased, you know, about fivefold. Yeah. All right. Anything else on trauma care and dentistry uh, that we want to touch on before we move on to the other topics? No, I think that's probably about it. All right. Um, I'm struck by the the news this past week. You know, the Illinois has now passed the statewide, yeah. um, for lack of better words, assault weapon ban. Mm -hmm. um, I saw a term on your webpage the day that, that cracked me up, crime bill babies. Yeah, and, um, you know, there. Don't know me. 
several episodes ago, Randy Harris and I were talking about the, the Glock 26s and everything, how those came into being. All that genre of gun was a direct result of the 1994 crime bill. Yeah. The gun manufacturer just sawed off the grips at the whatever it was, 10 rounds would be. And, yeah. Um, you know, people that have come into the whole training world since 2004, they don't really have a lot of, they don't have any memory of that, don't have a lot of knowledge of that. Yeah. And, you know, we're starting to see pockets of that pop up back around the United States. So we're going to see lots of lawsuits popping up again around the United States. And it's going to get, you know, if they make it to this current Supreme Court. Yeah. We'll probably see some of them struck down. Yeah. Uh, but if they make it to the Supreme Court that we might have in five years, that might not be the, be the case. Right. Yeah. Um, in my travels, I have twice accidentally felonied by accidentally entering into an area that had a 10 round capacity limit. And even though I was legal sure. to carry there under Leosa. Yeah. Eh, everything. So that's one of the reasons I went out and bought a Glock 48. It was my 50 state travel. Sure. Gun. Yeah. What would your suggestions be for the, the quintessential 50 state legal handgun? Well, depending on how, um, you know, what the person's, I guess, brand preferences. I mean, you can kind of go several directions with this, but I'd say like, you know, any 10 round, um, you know, single or double stack or, or split stack or whatever you want to call a magazine, whether that's a shield, whether that's a 43X, whether that's a Glock 48, uh, whether that's a SIG P365. Um, I think that those are all good choices. If you're, um, what does Daryl call us? The Gen X FUDs or something like X FUDs or something like that. Um, you know, if you're somebody that wants to go that direction, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I have a an eight shot 357 revolver um, that has a two inch barrel um, that is really comfortable to carry in the car um, and is actually pretty concealable. So, I mean, something like that would not be beyond the pale. It, it's, I think it's, um, you know, you lose two rounds as opposed to one of those other pistols, but there's no state where that's not legal. Um, and the other advantage to that is the states that have a magazine restriction and an ammunition type restriction, you can still get 38 or 357 ammo that is non-expanding ammunition that is still pretty stout that has a good um, service history. Like I'm thinking like, you know, in a, in a barrel that short, you know, like probably something like a 158 something. Yeah. I think the quintessential recommendation for that has been the federal gold medal match bug cutter. Uh, for short barrel revolvers in yeah. 38. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, with 357 and short barrels, you have just such a pronounced mm-hmm. muzzle blast and so much yeah. unburnt powder with such a velocity loss because you don't have enough yeah. runway to, yeah. send it up it's it's it, you know the people that do that like they're doing that because they don't know yeah uh, georgia or, georgia arms has recently introduced uh yeah a combat wad cutter. cutter thing yeah and we would we will be doing an upcoming episode on that round with several of the people that were involved and and uh cool. and getting that off the ground we just got to get everybody in the same place at the same time and, yeah um, yeah the, the the big thing for wad cutters you know a lot of people that are new to the concept don't get it 
you know, 38s give up a lot in penetration. So, you know, almost all of the performance hollow points that are available from all the major manufacturers, probably the best one of them is like the Spear Gold Dot, uh, like in a 135-ish. Um, but they still, you know, do right at the bare minimum, you know, like 13 to 14 inches of uh, penetration after going through denim and uh, ballistic gelatin. So, People get around that by going to um, a, a wad cutter and, you know, the wad cutter does not have any expansion. It stays, it's true, you know, uh, 357 caliber or 356 caliber um, after it's recovered, but it cuts a perfectly round hole with that <coughs> sharp front shoulder on that. And, um, and it penetrates pretty well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, even through barriers sometimes. So <clears throat> that was the idea behind it. <clears throat> the other thing is, is they usually have a little bit more mild recoil because they're fairly low velocity. Um, and they also usually shoot to the sights on fixed uh, sight revolvers. So that's kind of the, the thought, you know, um, especially if you have a gun that, you know, could shoot um, gold dots, but it doesn't shoot them to the point of aim. Uh, you know, there's no coincidence between the point of aim and the point of impact. But if you try some wad cutters, I have yet, knock on wood, to see a gun in 38 or 357 that doesn't shoot wad cutters to the, the point of aim. Yeah, I was really excited when that gold dot load came out and I bought a box of it and does not shoot anywhere close to point of aim in about yeah. 365. Yeah. And like, well, this is this is useless if it doesn't shoot to where I'm pointing the down. Yeah, that's with your uh, with your sig. Uh, no, a three inch sixty five. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I thought you said three sixty five. Sorry. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I would say you know if you try the gold medal match. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're hard to find, but um, I've been really lucky with Lucky Gunner and with Midway USA finding them. And then when I find them, I buy the limit, like whatever yeah. the limit is that they'll sell. So. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of questions uh, in where I solicited in the group, and I'm just going to combine them all into the one question here. Uh, okay. If you're going out now looking for a revolver, uh, Old Smith versus New Smith, I know there were several new uh, revolvers introduced recently with red dot mounting options or pistol mounted options, uh, optics on them, uh, sighting systems. What are your preferences there? What would you recommend? Um, I'm a fan of the older manufacturer Smiths. I have not had good luck with recent manufacturer Smith revolvers. I've had good luck with M&Ps, um, but not revolvers. I've had a Smith & Wesson Model 69 and 44 Magnum where they use a barrel sleeve. So it's like a cover that goes over the barrel um, and then the barrel is screwed into the frame. Um, and I had the the sleeve, the, or I mean, sorry, the the barrel itself, you know, the, the top yeah. part that has the sights on it, unclock as I was shooting it, you know? So I started to think like, where are these rounds going? I'm not wanging on the trigger, I know that. And yeah. um, and then I realized that the front sight was turning um, counterclockwise on me. And so I, I got rid of that. Um, and then I also had a 442 that I bought um, and I didn't realize it at the time because this was the kind of gun store because 
it was actually a good deal. It was $379. So I bought it, yeah. but this is the kind of gun store where the one that you look at behind the counter is not the one that they give you. Like they give you one from the back, like of the yeah. stack of them. And I didn't realize until I got out of the store that um, there was a great big, huge gap between the crane and the frame. Like, like, a, I mean, like probably three millimeters. And I was afraid to shoot the gun because I thought it might um, automatically be out of uh, concentricity with the bore and out of time. Yeah. So I returned to Smith and Wesson. They had really great customer service. They fixed it like in two weeks and sent it back to me. But that just kind of like made me go, yeah. eh, until you guys get your Tennessee facility like all the way spooled up and your revolver game changes a bit um i'm gonna stick with the old stuff but you know i not a week goes by where i don't see something you know in the local gun shop where i'm like oh man that's a great buy but i already got three of those you know and um as far as the older smiths um as far as the new stuff you know caleb giddings is working for taurus now i'm not sure like what his exact job title is there but caleb is a cool guy and he um is a just a revolver you know, aficionado, and he's done some stuff to improve their line. Now, as far as red dot stuff, I'm not the guy to ask about red dots because um, I haven't taken that uh, plunge because I'm still, mm -hmm. thankfully, um, very farsighted and haven't had any decline with age in my distance vision. So I just haven't taken the red dot sight challenge. Um, and I also kind of feel like Tom Givens, like I've been looking for the front sight for the last 30 years. And if I should try to stop now, I don't think I'd be able to. Um, so if I get to the point where my eyes don't allow me to do that anymore, then I'll make the change. But, um, you know, the, I can say, though, that the other Taurus uh, new revolvers, really old Taurus revolvers were decent, too. The ones that were direct Brazilian copies of Smith & Wesson products that were made, I believe, on licensed Smith & Wesson machinery. Um, like the model 85s, there was like a K frame and sort of a um, end frame size gun that were made back then. Um, those are decent. And then these new manufacturer, like the executive grade 856, I think those are, are definitely a step in the right direction, despite all of the debacle that happened either last week or the week before with that gun tuber, you know thrown a fit because he couldn't shoot that a56 like he shoots a semi-automatic pistol and the um crane screw came out of the side well i mean it's not a pistol you can't shoot it the same way just like you can't drive you know a manual transmission car the same way that you drive a, a automatic transmission car the same doesn't carry you know the same <laughs> concept carries over to pistols and revolvers and you can't put 500 rounds through a revolver without checking the screws, you know? And, and I think that you're old enough to remember Lee, like when I went through the, uh, the cadet Academy, um, we all had revolvers, you know, like there, yeah. you know, there was very few people that had semi-automatic pistols, but they pretty much wanted cadets to stay with, you know, either K frame or L frame revolvers. Um, and so um, the, you know, when you'd go to the qualification, yeah. There were toothbrushes, uh, AUB D jammers, and then whatever that fancy wood handled Smith and Wesson screwdriver was. And yeah. you were told to like check the screws on your revolver, like literally every 50 rounds. And then, you know, bang out uh, with the toothbrush behind the extractor star and get all the unburnt yeah. powder out. 
and then um, make sure that your um, ejector rod was still turning freely. And so um, back then, it was just, you know, it was part of the culture, like nobody really thought about it. Well, all that stuff, of course, has gone by the wayside. And if you take, you know, even a gun that has well-fitted screws and you shoot it 500 times, hell, there's a pretty good chance that that torque of fire in that thing in a relatively lightweight gun is going to cause those screws to turn the other direction. So um, you just have to know these things because no one's going to tell you. And, um, and I think that, like I said, even despite that debacle, I've checked out Chuck Haggard's and a couple of other ones now, and uh, I really like them and I'll look forward to getting one. Yeah, um, I have long had a love affair with fixed sided three inch K frame revolvers. Sure. Uh, but unfortunately, my eyes have gotten to the point where I can't see that ramp front side anymore. And yeah. so I'm, I'm going to have to have a couple of mine that are, I'm willing to sacrifice uh, altered with different sites yeah. put on them and which I yeah. know is going to involve machining of the guns, but these are ones that have already had some couple of things to them. So they're, they're not collector grade anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I have in the meantime, have begun experimenting with a couple of Ruger LCRs. Yeah. And I, I like those. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't when they first came on the market and I think the 38 version, the only one I ever shot of those was like, yeah, this has got too much recoil for this size gun. And yeah. I kind of dismissed it. Um, I did grab one of the 327 models and I'm shooting 32 mm -hmm. longs in it. Yeah. And enjoying it. And I picked up one here recently in 22 long rifle. And in, you know, dry handling it, I thought the trigger was going to be way too heavy. Actually yeah. going out and shooting it live fire. I love the trigger on that gun. Yeah. Um, Don't let Tom catch you carrying that thing. Yeah, well, you know, it, sometimes things happen. Yeah, children have to go off and do their own, have to learn their own, yeah. own way. He's going to say, Lee, for crying out loud, if you're going to carry that thing, at least carry two of them. Yeah. Um, you know, th I carry those guns in places where I can't carry guns. Sure. That, that's that's what, I, what I phrase. I, places that I term as high headache areas. Yeah. Where I, I'm legally allowed to carry because of Leosa and other things. Yeah. But there's a lot of headache if I get discovered, and I yeah. find I find them easier to conceal than some of the other options out there, and so that's yeah. when I use them. Agreed. Uh, um, you and Claude Warner mm -hmm. uh, have been recently posting pictures of mm -hmm. a certain inscription that you put on on firearms. Oh yeah. And I had someone that wants to ask, what is your recommended font and size of lettering to scrape your message into a firearm? Okay. I like sans serif. And um, I think a 26 is, is a good way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Tell everybody what we're talking about here. Okay. So um, I got, the, I stole this idea from Claude Werner who got it from his father, but you know, one of the concerns I've had, um, you know, traveling with a gun in checked luggage, you know, declared checked luggage is I worry about TSA stealing it, you know? And so I thought like, what's a good way to um, deter that? And my buddy, the late James Yeager said, you know, like have the gun in the box, like disassembled because they probably don't know how to put it back together and that'll dissuade them. And I was like, huh? Okay. So I tried that for a while and I was like, 
eh, I don't know. They might still be like savvy enough to like know where the guide rod goes and how to put it back in the barrel and stuff. And so I ended up getting a Smith and Wesson model 6904, which you remember is a third generation, 12 shot, nine millimeter, kind of like the Glock 19 before there was a Glock 19. Yeah. Um, I, I first learned about it with Dave Spaulding when he was writing for guns and weapons for law enforcement and combat handguns through Harris publication way back when. And so anyway, I got one of those and I had um, one of the sergeants at my first police department engrave on the top of it, stolen from Sherman House, Nashville, Tennessee. And cause he was, he was like, you know, like the property room guy that was a wizard with the engraver, you know? So everybody would always have him engrave their cuffs or their knife or whatever. And he had such great handwriting, you know, those are hard to do with those engravers, but he was so good at it. So he did it on mine. And then um, I use that gun for traveling and, and it's kind of cool for travel because if you take the slide off that thing and then you hide the slide stop like down in the foam to where they're not going to immediately find it, you can't put the gun back together. So, so congratulations, you've stolen my gun that says stolen from Sherman House on the top of it, but you can't do a damn thing with it. So good job. Um, and then, you know, I, at one point I did one on a shield that I use for travel sometimes. And then I did one on my full size Smith <clears throat> and, um, and then it just kind of turned into a thing where, you know, I thought like if, if the gun gets stolen while I'm traveling um, or uh, you know, if somebody gets the best of me someday uh, y'all be able to figure out who it was. <laughs> oh, one more question. Uh, sure. Brian Eastridge of the EDC yeah. belt company. And, sure. Uh, the, the, I always on duty. Is it on duty, off duty, off duty, on duty? Brian Eastridge, everybody on the show will know who, who yeah. Brian is. Wants to know why he always, why he feels like every time he's talking to you, you're judging his teeth. Oh. Uh, well, I'm not judging him. I'm just, um, I'm just assessing how easy it would be for me to snatch him out. <laughs> well, well, Greg Elephant uh, replied to that, that he solved that problem by going to you as his dentist and having you fix his teeth. And yeah, so, that's you know, true. <laughs> well, I guess that doesn't break the HIPAA rules if he said it. Yeah. Uh, uh, in closing, uh, I know you're back teaching at Tactical Response. Yes, I am. Uh, just tell our audience about what you're teaching there. And if you have anything you would like to say about James, feel free to throw that in there as well. Sure. So, you know, I, um, I've always kind of thought of myself, um, you know, as, as a martial artist. And I, I, I do believe that, that shooting is a true American martial art. You know, we were the people that kind of uh, perfected it and brought it to its current state. And um, when I first met James, you know, I had already been shooting for about 15 years in training. Um, and then when I met James, I, I had never met somebody before that had philosophy to go along with the doctrine, you know. And, and like I said, a lot of that stuff is contiguous with Andy Stanford and with Tom Gibbons um who i met later on and so um you know james was a dear friend of mine he was you know one of my best friends that i've ever known um and uh, one of the first real friends that i met in tennessee when i moved here from washington and so um you know like i said i worked for him for several years and you know always had a great time and and you know i felt like we really moved the needle on a lot of things and and then unfortunately, um, this past fall, you know, he um, succumbed to ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And, 
and passed away uh, very quickly. And, um, and so, you know, I hadn't, I guess I, you know, like I still have his number in my phone and, and there's times where like I see him on YouTube videos and stuff and I still feel like he's here um, even though he's not. But I still remember and I have like my notes from so many of his classes you know, and things that he said over the years to me, like as I was an instructor for him um, about how to tighten up my game. And, you know, I started to think about it, like um, what can I do to help move his legacy along, you know? And I feel like as a martial artist, you have a duty as the pupil of whoever you studied under to, you know, continue their work and, give attribution to them for the things that you learn for them. So I um, talked to James's family, who's now running the administration of the business and, and asked them about going back, you know, to be an instructor there again. And, and they were all for it. So um, I'll be doing that again on a regular basis. I just taught a shotgun class um, this past Saturday and Sunday, and I'm teaching a rifle class next weekend. Um, and then a pistol class the 28th and 29th of this month and then probably next week i'll post what my schedule is going to be for february um but yeah um i'm teaching in camden tennessee i probably won't be teaching any road classes just because it's difficult with my academic schedule um at this point unless i you know have vacation days and it's planned well in advance um but yeah you can catch me in camden and i'll be um teaching there for the foreseeable future and, um, and like I said, um, you know, when I go into my jujitsu academy, there's, you know, three pictures on the wall, one of Carlos Gracie, one of Helio Gracie, and one of uh, Holes Gracie. And, you know, my professors trace their lineage to those guys, you know, and so like, you know, I trace my lineage as uh, um, an instructor and a professor in our art, you know, to, you know, guys like James and Tom and John Farnham, you know, and so I think it's important to give attribution to uh, your lineage where you came from and where those guys came from, you know, Tom was a mentor to James um, and, you know, Farnham was a mentor to Tom. So, you know, and it, and it goes all the way back. And I think that that's a really cool thing for us to be able to, um, you know, pay homage to where we came from, but also allow us to understand the history that's behind it and the history of the development. So that when somebody says, hey, Lee, have you heard about this new greatest, you know, thing to do this? And you're like, no, that's complete crap. Like Dave Spaulding was doing that stuff back in 1988, you know? And then yeah. they're like, what? I never knew that. Well, of course you didn't know that because you didn't drill down deep enough, you know? So um, I, I think that, that um, I, I really am excited that in the training industry lately, it's kind of taken a little more of an academic perspective amongst our peers. Um, and, and people are really actually being mindful of like when you guys did the uh, combat triad or the, uh, you know, triad the other day, you know, I was like, damn, like you guys talked for 90 minutes about something that's like pure philosophy and it was great, you know, but you know, there's dozens of us that are interested in that, literally <laughs> dozens of us. And so, you know, trying to get other people to capture that, um, 
that that kind of spark and and see the importance in that whereas a lot of people might just think that's minutia you know if you consider yourself to be um, a true student of this craft on the path to mastership which we'll never get but if you're on the path then you know it, it behooves you to know these kinds of things and be able to speak about them intelligently or at least be able to listen with a good frame of reference and understand what they're talking about so that's why i'm doing what i'm doing you know as you were I talking make about a lot more money on the weekends uh you know going and shucking teeth in the ghetto um, and draining abscesses but i do enough of that during the week and i yeah. i i really i don't feel i've never felt like teaching firearms instruction even in horribly inclement weather is really like work it's more like fun that you're also getting paid for um and more importantly it's fun that you know you now you've been an instrumental part in a 16-hour weekend for someone that they're going to remember if that's their only class they might remember that forever even if it's their hundredth class they might still remember it forever because they got something useful out of it so i think it's um i think it's a uh, a valuable pursuit as you were talking about teaching classes in January and February in Camden, Tennessee, I was first thought was, you know, you could tell folks it's Tennessee, the weather's not going to be really that bad. And then I remembered a certain class of April in yes. Tennessee. And it was snowing. And it snowed on yeah. us uh, to yeah. the point we had to go into a building and take warming breaks because yeah. people's fingers were getting so cold that yeah. they, they couldn't operate the slides on their pistols. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything you would like to discuss or add that I did not ask you about tonight? I don't think so. I think um, I think we hit uh, I think we hit a lot of stuff. All so right. um, tell people where they find your Civilian Defender webpage and your sure uh, civiliandefender.com. Um, and I'm on um, Facebook as Sherman S H E R M A N House H O U S E. Um, and that's that's where I post all of my uh, tactical content, and then I also put my tactical response schedule there as well. Yeah, it's funny because you had left Facebook for for so long that when I got the yeah. phone request of the day, like I was like, "Is this a scam?" So yeah, I was texting there was about twenty people that texted me and was like, "Is this really you?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah it's really me." Yeah, and then I went into a group on Facebook, and there was someone, hey, Sherman's back on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I guess it is really well, him. You know, the thing that I, I didn't realize about Facebook until I yeah. tried to post links on Instagram is you can't post links on Instagram. Right. So, you know, it's like, hey, I'm coming back to work at Tactical Response, and you can sign up for these classes not here. So yeah. then I was like, oh, there's got to be a better solution. And so I was like, oh, Facebook it is. Yeah. Well, all righty, man. Um, Thank you for joining us tonight. And, thank you for uh, having me. Thank you. And uh, to the audience, if you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, please do so. We're at like 943 as of the time of the recording. I want to get that up to 1,000 so I can turn on some of the features. And after that, I'm not going to be worried about the numbers on that. Um, thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. As we know, your time is your most important asset. And we really appreciate you giving some of it to us.